Good evening and welcome to Constriction Pictures, movies that grab you. I'm your host, Bob O'Rourke, and uh, welcome to our very first episode. Uh, well, first episode if you're not counting the preview episode. Um, if you hadn't heard that, uh, basically I just introduced the podcast, introduced myself, so you learn a little bit about my horror background. Um, but if you are new here and you're not sure what a Constriction Picture is, uh, constriction pictures. Uh, we're talking about movies that grabbed you. Um, you know, the first time you saw it in a theater, uh, if you caught it on VHS at the video store, or if you caught it on late night cable. Um, and any, any, no matter how you saw it, it gripped you and it still holds on to you today. And you're a fan today. Um, that's what we're all about. And it's not necessarily horror. You know, we might, you know, f- spread our wings a little bit. And check out some other genres, but for for all intents and purposes, we're a horror podcast. Okay, and if you're new, uh, if, if for some reason you didn't listen to the previous, you know, the preview episode, um, been a longtime horror fan uh, ever since I was probably three years old, and I love it all. Um, I primarily I focus on stuff from the '60s, '70s, and '80s. Some of the stuff from the '90s, and you know, maybe even some modern stuff. Um, but I'm certainly not, you know, putting my nose up at, you know, current stuff. It's just, I, you know, I'll be the first to admit it. I'm not as, I, I'm not as up to date on current stuff as I should be, but whatever. So let's get into tonight's movie. Uh, roll the trailer. Night of total terror. <laughs> Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. adventure in fear, an experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare, night of the living dead, a night with the dead who cannot die, a night of total terror. Night of the Living Dead. All right, so we're talking about the 1968 George A. Romero classic, Night of the Living Dead, uh, which Romero co-wrote with uh, John A. Russo. Yeah, so uh, let, let's get into some film facts. Um, it started life as a horror comedy, uh, which Russo and Romero had you know, come up with called Monster Flick. Uh, was something about hot riding teenagers from space. That's kind of cool. Uh, eventually, there was uh, some inspiration from Richard Matheson's uh, I Am Legend novel, which, if you haven't checked that out, um, 
do yourself a favor. Check it out. Pronto. Also, there's a couple of film adaptations of that. Uh, the best one being, um, you know, the, the Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price. Initially, there was a budget of about uh, $6,000 uh, with the original 10 guys from the Image 10 group. You know, Romero, Russo, Russ Streiner, Carl Hardman, Marilyn Eastman. They each kicked in 600 bucks. And then another 10 investors eventually came around, which raised the budget between somewhere, you know, 114000 uh, to 125000 <clears throat> It was filmed in and around Evan City, Pennsylvania, um, which uh, it's a small little town, uh, maybe about so maybe 45 minutes to an hour north of, of Pittsburgh and Monroeville. Um, also, in October this year, uh, Living Dead Weekend will be happening um, October 20th and the, through the 22nd, 2023. Um, so if you're a fan of this movie like I am, go check it out. Get out there. It's going to be a cool convention. There'll be a lot of Romero guests from all the Romero films and what have you. Definitely worth checking out. Originally, uh, this film was called Night of the Flesh Eaters. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of that. Um, but obviously, there was a movie out called Flesh Eater. And so in order to avoid any kind of problems, uh, the title was changed to Night of the Living Dead. And unfortunately, the copyright notice got accidentally deleted. No one caught it. So that became a problem. Um, but that's another story for another time. Now, the first time that I saw Night of the Living Dead, uh, I can actually thank my babysitter um, from, you know, when I was in kindergarten. Uh, I don't think it was quite kindergarten. It probably would have been first grade, maybe second grade. My babysitter at the time knew that I was a big horror fan. I remember kind of getting in trouble for bringing in uh, a Fangoria magazine called uh, Horror Video Presents and uh, kind of scared some of the other kids with some of the pictures that were in the magazine. But, you know, hey, my parents bought it for me and they supported it. So it was cool. But yeah, so she gave me a videotape, a VHS here of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, it's a Star Classics uh, budget release, I guess you could say. Um, I'm actually holding it here in my hand. I still have it after all these years. This particular release is from 1985. You know, the cover's kind of generic. It's kind of gray and it has that famous picture of uh, a bunch of the zombies kind of standing around. Uh, it's titled The Night of the Living Dead. And actually, on this particular VHS tape, it, the quality is rough. I mean, that's one of the things about Night of the Living Dead that has always kind of, I guess, plagued the movie. Um, obviously, the the thing with the copyright kind of uh, fucked things up a little bit. And, you know, anybody who had, a, had access to re release videos was putting out Night of the Living Dead. Um, and it could have been dubbed from shitty drive, you know, drive-in prints that are you know, fourth or fifth generation just beat to shit. And uh, unfortunately, that's kind of what happened with the Star Classics version. It's horribly washed out, almost unwatchable. Um, so, I mean, at the time, I was pretty bored by it. So it didn't initially grab me the way that I, or, you know, the, the way that it should have, I should say. I also have here the 1980, 1982 release of Night of the Living Dead from Media, the media release that's in this cool purple box and actually my copy has all the original flaps on it and everything and it looks great uh, it's not too sun faded you know oftentimes you see this particular version and it's you know the cover art is sun faded from sitting in the front window of a you know video store for many years uh, we'll also do a little plot description here from the back of the box 
The dead come back to life in this eerie, gruesome horror flick guaranteed to give you at least one bad night's sleep. That's all in bold, too, so they mean that shit. Night of the Living Dead centers on a group of people taking shelter in an abandoned farmhouse to escape the clutches of a band of murderous zombies. This film is not for the squeamish. Black and white, 95 minutes. Let's get started with the movie, shall we? So we open with uh, not the traditional, you know, at least up until that point, the traditional sort of gothic, um, you know, nighttime thunder and lightning sort of, uh, you know, uh, setting for a horror film. Uh, but no, we're in, you know, uh, rural Pennsylvania driving on some, you know, back roads following uh, this car um, containing Johnny and Barbara, brother and sister by Russ Streiner and Judith O'Day, respectively. So, yeah, they're going out to the cemetery. Johnny's complaining. He's bitching about having to drive all this way. And, you know, um, Barbara's just sort of like, okay, John, whatever, you know, uh, complaining to hear yourself talk, that kind of thing. Um, but really, you know, Johnny is kind of a pain in the ass in this scene. Um, you know, he's just complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining. Um, but the whole time, uh, you know, Russ Reiner, uh, is playing with, uh, his driving gloves, uh, which is, you know, sort of foreshadowing. So, uh, later on in the film, you know, we recognize those driving gloves. Um, but it's cool. Uh, Judith O'Day, she's great as Barbara. She's, you know, a little bit mousy, a little quiet, um, as they go over to the grave and walk through the cemetery and stuff. She's very calm and peaceful and, you know, obviously wanting to pay her respects. And then, of course, Johnny starts teasing her, you know, as in true brother fashion, he starts teasing her and, you know, you, you can almost picture them as children, you know, with him teasing her that way. Um, and then out of nowhere, you know, he pulls out the, hey, you're still afraid. And, uh, of course, the classic line, uh, you know, they're coming to get you, Barbara. And, you know, one of the cool things about that line is, I've always wondered, I'm like, is that from a movie or is that just something that Russ came up with? And from what I understand, I think it is something that Russ just came up with. Um, but that line alone has sort of, um, I think, kind of goes hand in hand with Night of the Living Dead. Uh, they're coming to get you, Barbara, you know. Um, and of course, they see somebody walking through the cemetery and he goes, you know, hey, look, there, there goes one of them now. I'm getting out of here. And, you know, Barbara's sort of embarrassed, you know, that. Johnny's being sort of an asshole in front of this this guy, making fun of this guy. And she goes up to the guy to sort of apologize, and he gets closer and closer. But, you know, it starts out where you see him way off in the distance. And there's a there's an obvious subtext there, too, that if you really want to read into it about, um, you know, horrors kind of being far away and sort of out of sight, out of mind, and then before you know it, they're on top of you, um, which I think is also something that kind of goes along with what was going on in in the U.S., um, obviously, most of the world in, in, the, in 1968, things get pretty crazy, pretty fast. Um, the the cemetery ghoul, the first ghoul, um, if you want to, you know, whichever you prefer, um, played by Bill Heinzman, uh, brilliant as the, the cemetery ghoul. Um, he, had, of course, attacks and, you know, he's grabbing at Barbara and Johnny comes over to fight him and sort of wrestle him off and they kind of have a back and forth. You know, uh, Johnny ends up getting killed. He gets his skull crushed in on one of the headstones. 
Uh, and of course, Barbara can't believe what she's seeing and she flees for her life. She's screaming. And then the movie kind of kicks in with, you know, the, the traditional music that you would expect in a, in a horror film. You know, uh, you, you could almost picture this music playing in, in uh, a hammer film from the 60s. Uh, she's running across the through the, you know, through the uh, the cemetery and the Bill Heinzman zombie is chasing her. Um, he's a little faster than, you know, the, the typical uh, Romero zombies that we would see later on. But, you know, the, the way I look at it is they're kind of making it up as they go. And the, the rules aren't yet established, you know. So she gets to the car and she, you know, is trying to, you know, start the car. And, of course, she doesn't have the keys because Johnny has the keys, as we later find out. Um, and, you know, she's fiddling around and you know, she's got the windows up. And the Heinzman zombie comes over and he's smashing on the window trying to get in anything he can. And, you know, he's steps away for a second and grabs a brick and starts smashing the window and busts the window out. And the whole time, you know, Barbara's freaking out and screaming and, you know, he's reaching in to try to get her. And uh, she ends up pulling the emergency brake and gets the car driving, you know, sort of coasting down the, the road there in the, in the cemetery. Uh, the Heinzman zombie is chasing her and kind of keeping, almost keeping up with the car. So she's kind of rolling, you know, in neutral. And then he hits a tree and, of course, she's you know, has to get out and run for her life again. And she's running down the road and, you know, eventually finds herself in a farm, you know, in a, uh, a field and runs across the field and finds his house. And she sees the house and she runs there to see if she can find help. So Barbara gets to the farmhouse and she's, you know, banging on the door trying to get anybody's attention and the place appears deserted. Um, you know, she's running around the outside of the house trying to get in and she ends up finally getting in. At that, by, by this point, it's still daylight, but it's rapidly getting darker and she comes into this house and it's all empty and she's kind of looking for help, trying to find somebody. You know, she finds this room that has uh, all the taxidermy animal heads and, and what have you. And there's, you know, some cool up close uh, shots of, of these different animal heads that are kind of freaky. Also, which, you know, Romero will later pay homage to in Dawn of the Dead and the, the gun store in the mall. And then... You know, she runs upstairs thinking somebody's upstairs and she sees this this grisly corpse at the top of the stairs, uh, which is kind of cool that um, that head was basically just a model kit of a skull with, you know, uh, mortician wax and putty and everything to create the gore all over it. And the, the Bosco chocolate syrup that they use for blood in the film, it's kind of cool. Um, but that's also become sort of a um, an iconic image associated with the movie. And it was on a lot of the poster art, um, you know, overseas and there's a great Japanese t-shirt with that artwork. And of course, uh, the Misfits on their Night of the Living Dead 7-inch uh, record, 45 record that they put out. Um, that was the cover art, which is cool. You know, Barbara's freaking out. She's ready to... be. She, she's come running down the stairs. She's she's terrified of what's in the house, even though obviously there's no, nobody in the house except her. Uh, she runs out the front door and immediately she's bathed in headlights. And uh, this truck pulls up and this guy gets out with a with a tire iron and he's clubbing zombies left and right. And it's, we're introduced to Ben, uh, played by the late great Dwayne Jones. Um, he comes in and basically she's still in shock. I mean, she can't believe that she's seeing anybody. Um, anybody's there to help her. She doesn't know what the hell's going on either. I mean, I wouldn't know what was going on if the dead started to walk and, you know, my sibling just got killed. <laughs> um, so, you know, Ben arrives, uh, he's taking out some of the straggler, zombies that are milling about the house and you know one of them that comes in actually that sneaks in through the back door um is uh is played by john russo which is kind of cool kind of fumbles in the back door and ben comes over and you know clubs him knocks him down and then stabs him with the, the 
the tire iron right in the head. And uh, there's another cool shot where Ben smashes one zombie in the face who's coming up the up in, into one of the doorways. And it's a close-up of, of him, of the, the zombie. And as he smashes him in the face, the zombie grabs his face sort of, you know, like in kind of hide the fact that there's nothing going on with his face as he gets hit um but as he backs up the shot reveals that there's more zombies behind him and it sort of starts out as one and then all of a sudden there's you know three or four behind him and it's just like man the numbers are already multiplying and it's it's becoming a dire situation and so at this point we're starting to figure out you know we're getting to know ben as he's sort of securing the house making sure that the doors are locked and the windows are locked and he's looking for pieces of wood to sort of board everything up and trying to find anything he's asking barbara do you live here you know is there a phone they're trying the phone the phone's not working and he the whole time ben is trying to secure the place but he's also starting to talk about what he's been through and how he was at beekman's diner and he saw um you know a bunch of those things you know sort of scattering they wouldn't move when somebody drove right through them and then you know, and then the place blew up and it was just a big mess. Uh, but it's a really cool scene because we're getting to know um, Ben at this point. But also, unfortunately, one of the things about Night of the Living Dead that a lot of people complain about is that it's very talky. And it is, you know, especially when you compare it to, to Dawn of the Dead, where it's just sort of a nonstop ride, which, you know, I, I, I can't help it. I love Dawn of the Dead. I love Night of the Living Dead, too. And I love Day of the Dead. But night and day are very talky. Um, there's a lot of dialogue, but the, th- the thing is though, the dialogue, there's a lot of richness to the dialogue in, in throughout the movie, especially some of the things that later on that Helen Cooper says to Harry Cooper, uh, when, when they're talking about, um, those people up there aren't our enemies, you know, that there's, there's some, there's some sub, well, I, I wouldn't even call it subtext because it's, it's right there, you know, you know, what's going on in, in the world in 1968 with civil rights movement and stuff like that. So saying those people are our enemies, you know, dying together is not going to solve anything. And, and that's just, that, that to me is one of the huge strengths of, of Night of the Living Dead. At this point, you know, Barbara's sort of coming out of her catatonic state, um, but Ben's kind of looking at her like, yeah, this, this, this girl's crazy. She's, at, she's completely gone. She's Looney Tunes. Nobody's home. And she's starting to, you know, she's asking him what's going on, what's happening. And, you know, in, She's starting to lose her cool, and he's like, you know, I think you should just calm down. And the whole time, he's continuing to board up the house, and, you know, Barbara wants to go out and find Johnny. She's like, that he's alone, and he's he's out there by himself, and, and, you know, he's afraid. We need to help him. He's hurt. And Ben's like, you know what? Your brother's dead. And that's when Barbara loses her shit, and she sort of strikes Ben, and then almost on instinct, you know, he delivers a across to her and she takes it but then she passes out and you know she's (laughs) she's kind of on the couch for most of the movie um at that point though Dwayne Jones had had always said that he was very uncomfortable doing that scene because it's 1968 you have a black man striking a white woman you know and obviously there's historical um issues going on right there but uh so Ben finds uh the radio and he fires that up, and he's starting to listen to the radio, and we hear the voice of Charles Craig, uh, who later appears as, you know, on, on the TV. Um, but he's basically talking about what's going on, not just where they are, but you can, you, you're can you starting to get a sense that it's a lot bigger than just this farmhouse, that it's all over at least the Pennsylvania countryside. And one of the cool things that um, Romero did here, and, and Russo too, was 
they used real city names and real town names. So throughout the entire sequence, they're naming off all these different towns of places where you can go to where there's shelters and refuge and rescue centers and, you know, nurse stations and stuff like that. And I remember one time when I saw the film, um, actually in Evan City, when they were naming off all these towns, people were cheering off when their their hometown would, you know, get mentioned, which was kind of cool. But also at the same time, uh, Ben is, you know, he's starting to make torches and he has this chair that he kind of drags out on the front lawn right out front of the, the front porch and sets that on fire to sort of keep the, the, the zombies, the ghouls, you know, away from the house for a bit. And he also finds a rifle and some bullets. So it's like, all right, cool. He's starting to get some hope. And he finds some shoes for Barbara because actually she's been barefoot the entire movie <laughs> so far. Um, she lost her shoes in the uh, in the cemetery when she was trying to get away from Bill Heinzman, who's he's still out there too, by the way. So now at this point, we get um, we're we're really focusing on the radio. The radio is basically the only dialogue that dialogue that's happening uh, as Ben continues to you know sort of secure the house and board things up. And Barbara, she's kind of awake now and she's listening sort of intently to uh, the radio to find out what's going on. I, it's not really clear if it's in, even sinking into her though, if it's just going in one ear and out the other. Um, but it's a cool sequence because we're slowly closing in on the radio as we're hearing more and more details about what's going on with these, these killers that are roaming the countryside kind of thing. And then this is also the point where, uh, you know, Ben is away, he's not in the room and all of a sudden the basement door opens and Barbara screams and, you know, she sees Harry Cooper and, and Tom, uh, played by Carl Hartman and Keith Wayne. And uh, they come out and there's this interesting scene here where they're, you know, Cooper immediately goes for the radio to try to find out what the hell's going on. And Ben comes in and he's got his rifle ready. He's ready to shoot. And then he finds out, oh, these, you know, these are humans they are not these monsters. And they kind of argue back and forth a little bit. And, you know, of course, Ben is kind of like, hey, man, you know, I could have used your help up here. And of course, Cooper is like, oh, well, we couldn't hear a thing. And, you know, we couldn't hear anything. What was going on? And because they've been down in the basement hiding. And then, of course, uh, you know, Cooper trips up and says something. Oh, it sounded like the place was being torn apart. And Ben immediately calls him out on his bullshit. And he's like, dude, he's like, you just said you couldn't hear anything. And now you're saying that it sounded like it was being torn apart. It would be nice if you get your story straight, man. That's a cool scene. <laughs> he kind of puts Cooper in his place. But also at the same time, it immediately sets up this uh, power struggle between Cooper and Ben. Um, which again, if you want to read into it, you could say the, the, there's the racial thing there too, a white man and a black man, not saying it's there, but that I wouldn't be surprised if that was intentional. However, of course we know that, that Dwayne Jones was not, you know, he was only cast because, uh, he was the best actor in the group that they had. It wasn't, you know, the, the character of Ben wasn't written as a black man, which I think is very interesting. I think originally in the script, he was basically written as a trucker, you know, just I, I, I kind of envision him looking sort of like uh, the way Harry Cooper does, uh, you know, sort of middle aged and, you know, he's seen some shit because he's a truck driver going across the country kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so we get that we get that sort of dichotomy between uh, Cooper and Ben and Tom is just kind of there, you know, he's the young guy and Tom kind of tells about how him and his, his girlfriend, Judy played by Judith Ridley, they'd come, they knew the farmhouse was out there and they were going to go for a swim. And then, you know, some shit happened and they ended up taking refuge. And then they found the Coopers, um, 
course, uh, Harry Cooper, his wife Helen, played by Marilyn Eastman, and their daughter, uh, Karen Cooper, played by Car- played by Kyra Schoen, uh, who incidentally has been bitten by one of those things, as they say. And at this point, we're new to the Romero zombie verse, so we don't know what's going to happen now that she's been bitten by a zombie. Helen Cooper is staying downstairs with Karen, and they've got Karen sort of laid out on a on a door across from Saul Horses, and they're just trying to keep her cool. But you know, it's pretty apparent that she's not well. <laughs> um, she's got the fever. You know, the fever's starting to take over, and she's slowly dying. Um, Judy is kind of down there for moral support, but I think really Judy and Tom, you know, they, they don't they'd rather not be with the Coopers because the Coopers are crazy. (laughs) I mean, Harry has a short fuse and he's snapping at Helen left and right. Uh, But it's also cool because Helen Cooper doesn't take any Harry's shit. Um, When they come back down in the basement after he's kind of like fed up with the way Ben wants to run things upstairs, he comes down and he's kind of venting to to, to Helen. And he says, uh, you know, the radio said something, blah, 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 blah. She says, the radio? there's a radio up there and you boarded us in down here. What did it say? And it's, it's great. Cause it, it's kind of funny to see her, you know, stand up to him. And like I said, she doesn't take any of his shit. I mean, really at the end of the day, Cooper is just kind of a pathetic guy, but again, there's that dialogue. There's this great, um, back and forth. And at one point Cooper even says, um, you know, why should we help them? You know? And I guess, you could you you could even theorize that that is talking about what was going on in Vietnam at the time. You know, it's the, the you know Vietnam might as well have been uh, a separate planet. You know, from from America. So I'm sure that there was a vibe of why should we help out over there? Why you know that doesn't affect us? And that's kind of the vibe that you get from from Harry at this point too. There's also a great shock scene here where where Ben and Tom are walking through the house uh, and they pass by some, you know, one of the windows that's been boarded up and these hands sort of bust out through or from within, from without, whichever. They they burst through and they grab at them and, um, you know, Ben kind of gets away and uh, Tom is hacking at these hands uh, with, with his knife and just cutting these fingers up and the hands up and it's pretty gnarly, especially for, you know, the time. Ben sticks the rifle out through the, through the, through the boarded up window and he's, you know, shooting zombies. And that's kind of where they figure out uh, to shoot him in the head because he shoots one in the chest a few times and nothing happens. It just keeps coming. And then he finally pops him in the forehead and boom, you know, he falls down and doesn't get back up. That's a great scene. This scene between uh, Helen and, and Harry down in the basement where they're arguing is also, this is probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire film, um, where Helen pretty much states for me anyway, the, the main kind of message, if you will, in the movie, uh, where she says, we may not enjoy living together, but dying together isn't going to solve anything. Those people upstairs aren't our enemies. And that really, to me, I mean, it's not even subtext. I mean, it's right there. It's basically saying whether you're white and black or, you know, us here and what's going on in Vietnam, you know, all that stuff, it, it, you know, killing each other isn't going to solve anything. I think that's brilliant, and I really applaud um, Romero and Russo for coming up with that and putting that that message in what is essentially, or what easily could have been just another 
you know, drive-in B-movie schlockfest called Night of the Living Dead, you know, but it, there's, there's all this great, it's almost like every time I watch this movie, I find something new in it to appreciate, and uh, it's almost, you know, to be cliched, it's the gift that keeps on giving, you know, uh, but there's so much, so much richness in there to, to just keep digging, and you find more and more um, buried in this film and, and social commentary. It's just, it's wonderful. It really is. But then at this point, Harry and Helen come back upstairs, uh, and you know, we, they kind of, Helen gets to meet everybody and Ben finds a television and they're trying to find a TV and, you know, he needs, he needs, uh, Cooper's help, you know, moving the TV. So now at this point, the Coopers have come back upstairs and uh, Ben has found a television and he gets Tom to help him, you know, bring it over and they, you know, plug it in and they're, you know, trying to find out what's going on. And uh, it's it's also funny because Cooper, you know, is complaining and, you know, trying to, you know, uh, just being he's almost like Johnny, you know, he's just complaining here. And uh, Ben, you know, pretty much straight up just tells him, shut up. It's great. So now that they have the television and they're seeing um you know, uh, the, this news station, again, we see Charles Craig, um, you know, and, and there's this list of, of rescue stations. And again, you know, listing off real cities in the area of, of, uh, of Evan, Evan city. Um, they're basically warning everybody and telling everybody, you know, get to a safe place as quickly as possible. And that's sort of when they get the idea to, you know, they have the truck that Ben arrived in. Um, however, it's out of gas. So if we can find some gas, we can get out of here. And they get this whole idea to escape. Um, when, you know, reality, they're kind of, they would be probably safer in the house. Um, obviously we find out later on the TV, we get, uh, this is a cool scene where they're in Washington DC and it's actually the only scene in the film that's not shot, uh, near Evan city or anywhere in Pennsylvania. It's actually shot in Washington DC. Uh, there's a great, uh, cameo from George Romero. He's the reporter with the huge-ass microphone. Him and his cameraman sort of, uh, and another interviewer, um, you know, sort of ambush a, a military general and some scientists that are walking from meeting to meeting, you know, discussing everything that's going on in the world. And um, there's, a, there's a cool bit of dialogue um, where the scientist is almost starting to slip up and, you know, reveal some of the info about this Venus probe that that supposedly came back with a high level of radiation, and that's you know, what, uh, is bringing the dead back to life, but it's cool because the, the general sort of cuts him off. He's like, you know, doctor, I thought we weren't going to, you know, we're, we're not going to say anything about that until it's confirmed. And it, it's sort of setting up this science versus military, um, motif, uh, that, that later comes back in day of the dead. Um, obviously in that film, the military is sort of running the show and the scientists are there. They're military are basically just there for support. Uh, but once Captain Rhodes takes over, um, then it's his show and it's, you've got the, the, the other non-scientist people and the non-military people in that situation sort of caught in the middle of what's going on, this sort of power struggle. Um, but there's also a John Russo cameo as well. Uh, he's the general's driver. And I remember, I think John said that he actually wore his, his military, uh, uniform for that scene. Um, so that's kind of cool. Uh, and, and then also, uh, what's cool about that is that it's guerrilla film filmmaking at its best right there. I mean, they literally drove to Washington DC, filmed all the shit, got the hell out, you know, no permits or anything. It's pretty cool. So at this point, the gang starts, you know, making Molotov cocktails, uh, using some old fruit jars, um, 
Cooper notices that there's a big key ring downstairs, says maybe there's a key to the gas pump on it. Ben confesses that you know, he's not used to handling the truck, and Tom immediately volunteers to drive it and work the gas pump. Ben will ride shotgun, literally, and take out any ghouls that you know get too close. In this scene, you kind of get the sense that Tom is a good old boy, even though he's not sort of what we see as a good old boy today. Um, you know, he's not dressed like a hick or a redneck or anything like that, but the fact that he can handle the truck and the gas pump and all that stuff. And he even says that, you know, Ben doesn't know how to do any of that stuff. Uh, I'm the only one that can do it. It's like, all right, cool. Um, and then they also say that Cooper can toss the Molotov cocktails from an upstairs window. So basically the, the plan is to get gas, bring the truck back to the house, and then worry about getting everybody into the truck to escape. There's also sort of a sense of hope that this plan might actually work. You can see it on Ben's face that, you know, he's like, holy shit, this this could work. But at the same time, they're kind of scared. Um, you know, everyone's sort of playing a part in this this big plan, even Cooper. Um, but also you see it on his face, too. He looks like the gerbil in his, in his brain is starting to kind of get on the wheel and figure, hmm, you know, either this is going to not work and get everybody killed or I might have a chance to get the upper hand and have my way with everything and I can be the boss because even though all this shit is going on and everybody's dying it's important for for Cooper and Ben for both of them to be right that's ultimately what they want no matter what happens so Tom tells Judy uh the plan um she's sort of you know she's nervous about everything she wants to go call her folks um Tom's like, well, maybe they're already, he's like, the phone's dead. So, you know, there's no point in trying to call your folks. I already told you that. Maybe your parents are already at, you know, the rescue stations. And so she's kind of, uh, you know, sort of hemming and hawing about it. And she's asking, why does Tom have to go out there? We're safe in here. And Tom says, you know, we're safe now, but for how long? And he's got a good point because there's going to be more and more of those zombies slowly coming to the house. Um, but at the same time, this scene... <laughs> There's interesting dialogue going on, but the scene feels out of place. It's like everything else that's going on in the movie, for me, it almost kind of grinds everything to a halt because it, it, it's so melodramatic. The music that's playing under the scene, uh, it feels like a like a excise scene from, uh, from a, a melodramatic film or a TV show, soap opera or something. Um, there are some cool... Uh, some cool cinematography going on, which again, um, if I haven't, I actually haven't said it, George Romero, uh, did all the cinematography himself, uh, which is very cool. Um, but some of this stuff actually looks like you can see the commercial, uh, filmmaking background that Romero had with, uh, with the latent image and the, you know, the way that this shot is, or the way that this scene is shot, it, it feels like, you know, there's quick editing and stuff and some of the, shot setups, you know, look like something that you might see in a commercial, which is pretty cool. So now they're going to carry out with the plan and they start telling Barbara the plan. Uh, they introduce her to Judy because at this point, Barbara's been kind of catatonic and asleep on the couch. Um, and she has this great line where they basically say to her, you know, uh, we're going to go get some gas and get the truck and then we can leave. And she's like, oh yeah, I'd like to leave. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of silly. Um, so they open the front door when Cooper starts tossing the cocktails down, you know, they're making some patches of fire to cover Ben and Tom. And this is actually pretty cool because again, for the budget that this movie had, um, this is some production value. This is pretty cool. Um, dangerous shit too, that they're doing, um, when, 
obviously these guys knew what they were doing filmmaking wise, but I mean, having fire stunts and I mean, literally doing stunts. I mean, uh, Gary Streiner, uh, one of the, he, he was the sound man on the film. He, um, pops up as a, you know, obviously everybody, everybody, uh, played different roles throughout the film. Um, but Gary Streiner shows up as a, as a ghoul and he actually catches on fire. <laughs> and there's a shot in the, in the film where you can see him kind of, you know, fall down and, Right after they cut, somebody came over and put him out. <laughs> of course, as soon as they open the front door, you know, it's like trying to keep gnats and mosquitoes from getting into your house when you open your front door. Uh, the zombies are just kind of everywhere. Um, but the plan sort of looks like it's going smooth. Um, and then Raiders Cooper is about to, you know, he, he comes back downstairs and he's ready to close the front door once Ben and Tom are out. And as he's ready to close the front door, all of a sudden Judy decides, I'm going to go too. And she runs out onto the porch. And it's kind of a bonehead move. You know, Ben sees her and he yells at her, well, she coming? Come on. And, you know, he's firing at various zombies and trying to keep them at bay with his torch. And Tom's struggling to get the truck going. You know, Judy jumps in. They drive off. You know, the zombies are still kind of on top of them nonstop. Ben's shooting, waving the torch at different zombies. They get up to the gas pump and, of course, the key won't work. Ben shoots the lockout, which I guess probably isn't the smartest thing to do uh, at a by a gas pump. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe use the butt of the gun to break the lock. I don't know. Um, but of course, Tom, you know, goes and grabs the the gas handle and um, sprays gas all over the ground and the side of the truck. You know, as he's sort of rushing to do his part of the plan. And I get that. You know, I, I see that when, you know, when I'm doing part of a plan with whatever it is and, and work, you know, and I'm, I'm, I get to that point where I'm kind of rushing and you make mistakes, you know, there, there's always that, that adage about keeping a cool head, you know, when shit's going down and you make mistakes when your head's not on and that's kind of what's going on here. And of course, um, where Tom has already sprayed gas, there's, uh, it's right next to Ben, uh, where Ben has dropped his torch. So of course the truck catches on fire and Tom, immediately decides to get the truck away from the pump uh, and he drives away leaving ben on his own ben at this point has taken um you know some sort of rug out of the back of the truck and he's kind of trying to put the fire out at least the part on the ground so it doesn't blow up the gas pump because it's kind of near the gas pump and you know ben's yelling at tom to get away from the truck because it's gonna blow i mean the truck's on fire Tom gets the truck far enough away, screeches to a halt, gets out of the truck, and, of course, Judy's jacket is caught. Kind of dopey. Tom jumps back in to try to help her get her jacket out, and, of course, boom, truck explodes. Some cool shots of Ben's expression watching the, the everything explode, and uh, obviously there there's a, a real stunt that they did where they actually blew a truck up, you know, and... Um, but that's also conveyed from from Ben's point of view and Cooper's point of view. Uh, you see both of their faces as they're watching Ben from the gas pump and Cooper from back of the house looking through the boarded up windows, and their faces get illuminated with the bright light of the, the explosion. Ben fights his way back to the house. Uh, he's banging on the door for Cooper to let him in. Cooper's hesitant. Uh, you know, is it because he can finally be boss now, or is he scared? We're not really sure, but I think it's... Definitely both. 
Um, he definitely wants to be boss because, uh, again, there's been that whole power struggle between him and Ben throughout the entire movie. Uh, so Ben gets inside. Immediately, he's staring daggers at Cooper. And Cooper knows he's in for a world of shit because of the shit he was just trying to pull. And Ben beats the shit out of him. And, you know, he, he beats him up, throws him on the chair and says, I ought to drag you out there and feed you to those things. And Cooper, Cooper looks like he just got beat with a rubber hose. I mean, he's looking defeated. Um, but there's also this expression on him that looks like he's turned a corner and he realizes that something needs to be done, uh, that there's no turning back now. And then of course, now we have the eating scene, uh, where the truck just blew up. All the zombies are over there. The fire's out and the zombies are going to town. It's pretty wild. The zombies, obviously these zombie actors, they're just eating pieces of barbecue chicken, uh, from, and very chewing on various pieces from slaughterhouses. You know, there's lamb intestines filled with water so that they have some life to them. Uh, but really, you know, it's it's groundbreaking stuff. I mean, it's 1968, so it's not the very first gore movie. I mean, obviously, H.G. Lewis had done Blood Feast in 1963. In terms of B-level stuff, I mean, the, the, I mean, this was B-level too, but th this was just something that nobody had seen before. Um, I'm sure there were other cheaper movies going you know being released around this time that kind of pushed the envelope um but nothing quite like night of the living dead i mean because at least for my money horror movies were never the same after this sequence uh, during this whole scene there's a the, the score is this sort of droning buzz 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 you know kind of tune that's almost like a heartbeat it's really cool but it's also you know kind of dreadful like fuck and back at the house ben sees all this from the windows and you know he immediately recoils in shock and terror and almost like he's ready to throw up and he's kind of sitting there almost as if to say well i'm out of ideas what's next and helen says that there's going to be another broadcast around 3 a.m uh, which they figure out's like in 10 minutes now barbara's awake she kind of chimes in she's still catatonic though she's got babble at isn't really making any sense. Nobody's really paying any attention to her at this point. And Helen talks about what happened to them, uh, to the Coopers before they got to the farmhouse and they were trying to find a motel. And, you know, there was a group of them that overturned their car and, you know, Karen got attacked and she got bit. And at this point, Ben, Ben's reaction to hearing that Karen had been bitten. Um, it's just kind of like, Oh fuck. You know, he just, he just is kind of like, well, she's dead. You know, his, his, the way that his brow just kind of flutters like, oh boy. Um, but he also has the idea. He's like, okay, well maybe we can get to your car, turn it back over and use it as a getaway. Sounds like a good plan. And obviously, you know, like any good parents, Harry and, and, uh, and Helen are very hesitant to leave Karen and they can't really carry Karen while they're running out there for their lives. Kid can't walk. So Ben is like, well, one of us can get to the car and Cooper rightly shoots him down and says, what are you going to turn it over yourself? True story. And of course, this is also where, um, where Barbara starts talking about Johnny has the keys. And that's a funny little bit that, you know, Johnny has the keys and she starts talking about what happened to them and then Ben starts kind of paying attention. He's like, you have a car. And she's like, yeah, but you won't be able to start it because Johnny has the keys. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know, but where's your car? And at that point, 
she's gone. I mean, there's more and more zombies outside starting to bang on the doors and get closer. So they turn the TV on. And this is this is a really great scene, too. This is probably one of the other standout scenes of the film. Uh, this is where we get a, another TV broadcast, uh, this time with Bill, uh, Chili Billy Cardill. Uh, and he was actually a real TV you know, host uh, doing the chiller theater stuff out of Pittsburgh. So everybody knew who he was. And that's what was cool about this movie was that they used real people, real places. So the news footage feels documentary and it looks documentary. It's all handheld. I mean, the whole movie's hand, mostly handheld, but those scenes especially are handheld. So they definitely feel like the sort of documentaries that you would see in the late sixties, you know, especially when it comes to some of the more, um, some of the more visceral images of, you know, the civil rights movement, when you see, when, you know, you would see people refusing to leave a block or refusing to leave a building and the cops coming up and, you know, all this, all that kind of, you know, madness that was going on. Um, but yeah, so they're on location right now. Bill Cardill is, you know, interviewing posse members and they got footage of the posse showing up on this bridge and we're introduced to Sheriff McClelland, who's played by George Casana. And Sheriff McClelland is sort of, he's a good old boy. You know I mean? I think in the remake, um, he's, the the good old boy statue or stature of him is definitely amped up um, where Russ Reiner portrays him in, in, in the remake, the 1990 remake that Tom Savini did. Uh, but here he's pretty much, you know, no gruff and just kind of ordering people around left and right. Um, and also on the radio or on the, on the TV, they're saying a ghoul, a ghoul can be killed uh, by a shot to the head or heavy blow to the skull. Basically you kill the brain and you kill the ghoul and pretty much next to they're coming to get you Barbara we have the other you know most famous line from the movie where Bill Cardell asks Chief McClelland are they slow moving Chief and he says yeah they're dead they're all messed up so back in the house um, the power goes out finally it's it's kind of a wonder that uh, none of the zombies outside the house have finally you know managed to pull the cords and you know make the power go out in the house so now it's dark and things are starting to get a little more tense um cooper realizes that he's got to make a move um you know he's telling helen he's like you know i need to get that gun you know two people are already dead on account of that guy i mean you know basically him and ben if they get out of this thing they're not going to be sitting down for lunch together you know um, the zombies start, are starting to use rocks and clubs uh, from outside because, you know, there's the, the torches that, that Ben had. Um, they've all burnt out. Uh, the chair that Ben had put out in the beginning of the movie, that's burnt out. And there's a great shot of the chair um, pretty much not burning anymore. And it's just smoking. And it's like now that the fires are out, the zombies are getting closer and moving in on the house. And now they're picking up those torches and some bricks and rocks and whatever they're finding and smashing the windows and getting to... The, the barricades that are inside the house starting to push on that stuff and they're banging on the on the doors and banging on the walls and banging on the windows and it's starting to get really tense. Ben is trying to reinforce the barricades and Helen's actually trying to help him. Cooper, he's just standing idly by, you know, kind of again waiting for his you're you're not really sure. Is he is he waiting for his moment to to do what he feels needs to be done, or is he just scared and he's frightened? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, because he ultimately, he is, he's a wimp, you know? Uh, but as soon as Ben drops the rifle, Cooper goes for it, grabs it. And he basically orders Helen into the cellar. Meanwhile, all the zombies are still banging on the, on the walls and on the doors and on the windows. And he's basically like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. He's like, now, now you want to get into the cellar, huh? And, you know, kind of taunting Ben. 
and the two of them, you know, has, have sort of a, you know, struggle over the gun. And uh, when he's distracted by something that Helen says, uh, Ben, you know, hits him with, with a, a, a plank of wood and they kind of go at it back and forth. And Ben ends up getting the gun back from him and he shoots Harry in the stomach. And it's almost like he he's done with, with Cooper's shit. You know, he shot him in the stomach like he didn't even think twice about it. You know, where I think earlier in the movie when before shit really started to go down south for the, the whole situation, there may have been more of a, a threat like, you know, stop the shit or I'm going to shoot you. But no, he's just like, you're done. He shoots him right in the stomach. And nobody can really you know, believe what just happened. I think even Ben is sort of shocked by the fact that he did that. Cooper, you know, kind of stumbles around and Helen's at the front door trying to keep all the the barricades up and all these hands are starting to reach through between the barricades and it's getting kind of, it's getting really, really creepy. And I mean, this is where some of the coolest imagery from the film comes out with all those hands coming from behind the the, the barricades and reaching around and grabbing Helen and kind of pulling at her and stuff as she's, you know, pinned up against this door trying to hold it closed. Cooper stumbles into the basement to be with Karen and he gets to her and he kind of drops dead right by her little makeshift table that they've put her on. And meanwhile, back upstairs, Helen's, you know, still being attacked and Barbara finally snaps too and she tries to help and she ends up getting grabbed herself as Helen runs downstairs to check on Cooper and Karen. Helen gets downstairs, she finds Karen, who's now a zombie, and she's kneeling next to Harry's body, and she's eating what appears to be part of his right arm. It's a pretty gnarly scene. Uh, Karen just kind of sees Helen and turns to her and immediately starts coming for her. Helen's shocked. She's kind of partly crying, can't believe that her baby is, you know, is, is alive and what she's seeing, or alive, you know. Um, she falls back and gets... Uh, gets stabbed with the garden trowel. And this is another classic scene from the film where uh, Karen picks up this garden trowel off the wall and just starts stabbing the shit out of Helen. And it's a pretty brutal scene, even though the blood is, you know, the, the Bosco chocolate syrup because it's black and white. Uh, the funny thing about that scene is <laughs> back in the day when I used to work at this video store called Premiere Video, I would randomly play Night of the Living Dead. I'm like, it's not that bad. I mean, sure, there's a nude zombie, you see her butt, but you know, there's nothing. It's not like I was playing Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead, you know, language wise. Um, so I would play Night of the Living Dead every once in a while, just because, you know, it might be a Friday night and everybody's coming in to rent uh, a beautiful mind or whatever. And Night of the Living Dead is playing on the TVs. And I remember one, one night in particular, uh, when I was playing it and this scene was going down and I was kind of like, you know, the, the store was full and I just happened to look up as that was going on and, you know, the there's that screaming, screeching, you know, as, as she's being stabbed. And I kind of looked up and I was like, eh, maybe I shouldn't have done this, but eh, it's all right. You know, it's cool. Upstairs, Barbara's still being grabbed. Ben's trying to help her. Uh, the barricade comes down and the front door swings wide open. And of course, Johnny's there and his driving gloved hand is right there and comes into the door frame and, you know kind of just in case we forgot, you know, so that we can identify him. And, and he looks cool. His, his goal makeup is pretty rad. Um, cause obviously earlier in the movie, when we saw Johnny, you know, he was lively and he had glasses on and now he doesn't have glasses. His hair is kind of disheveled and, uh, he's got the chronic goal makeup that's going on that a lot of the zombies have. He's standing there and he immediately sees Barbara and Barbara's like just frozen in fear and shock. Like, Oh my God, you know, and he immediately grabs her, takes her out 
into the horde outside and she just disappears you know it, it's pretty gnarly pretty scary pretty pretty uh devastating too because here's the the main character that we've been with through through most of the movie and now she's gone meanwhile the the bill heinzman zombie the the cemetery ghoul he shows up and he busts through a window and and next thing we know he's in the house and he's just kind of like hey what's up um ben realizes that shit has gone south fast and he's kind of slowly backing into a corner um as you know more and more zombies are starting to pile into the house and at this point, the zombie Karen Cooper comes upstairs and she's grabbing at Ben and trying to reach for him. And he's just kind of holding her at bay, he ends up picking her up and kind of tossing her aside onto the couch. And then he heads for the basement, barricades himself inside down there. And, you know, that's kind of what he should have done in the first place. At this point, all the zombies are busting into the house. That's uh, actually kind of the scariest part of the movie because you've got the intense shadow and lighting going on because the power's out and the only light that we're seeing in there is from you know the moonlight basically so all these zombies and i don't know what it is it's just this part has always really 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 creeped me out and i, I really can't put my finger on it there's just something about all these people being in this house not just people but the fact that they're zombies and we know what the zombies do was we've seen it you know previously with the barbecue scene where they're eating everybody you know, and being outnumbered, being with Ben and being surrounded by all these people. It's like, oh man, I, 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 it creeps me out. I can't, I can't put my finger on it. Downstairs, Ben finds Harry and Helen's bodies. Um, Harry starts to sit up and Ben fires three shots into him. You know, he's not taking any shit anymore and he's making sure this dude's dead. He's triple tapping him. Uh, and of course, during this scene, the, the same music that was uh, playing during the barbecue eating scene, um, that droning kind of you know heartbeat kind of sound is playing which just adds to the, the the whole situation and then of course ben sees helen's body over there with the trowel still buried in her chest and he kind of looks away in horror but then he looks back and all of a sudden her eyes open you know and, and before she can even sit up as soon as her eyes open he just fires one shot at her and you know she's done and now at this point ben's kind of done you know he's He's looking around the basement for something, anything. He doesn't even, I don't even think at this point he knows what he's looking for. He's just looking for refuge, looking for weapons, whatever. He ends up just kneeling sort of in a corner, ready to defend himself. He's got the rifle, you know, ready. Should anybody come down the stairs, he's going to start blasting away with whatever, how many bullets he has left. So we cut to the morning. It's peaceful. It's quiet. There's no zombies in the, around the farmhouse at all. There's no music playing. It's just quiet serenity and and you know, very nice little farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere. Very, very nice. And then uh, we see the helicopter coming in. And the cool thing about this helicopter scene with the posse is it was a real local news helicopter that the that the filmmakers managed to wrangle. And I think that just added to the, the overall documentary feel, the fact that it was a real helicopter from a real news station. And that's, that's, huge budgetary stuff too you know this production value that they didn't have they just managed to you know get get these people to do all this stuff and that's one of the other things too about this movie is it had a small budget but everybody wanted to chip in and make help make this film you know local news people i mean bill cardill coming in and and you know supporting it and later on he would eventually show night living dead on chiller theater as well the fact that they had all this real stuff um i think lends a sense of of realism and credibility to those scenes where 
it looks documentary and I, I would say it would it would definitely look more documentary and realistic almost like you could be flipping through the channels and you find the news and think that's the movie you know because it's the news but uh, the way that they the way that the, f- the images are superimposed onto the screen you know they have part of the tv showing you know as the border for for the, the footage uh, but they do cut to you know on location basically and we're kind of with the posse and we're not watching on tv anymore but it still feels real it still feels like some of that some of that civil rights footage that um, i was talking about earlier where you would see this stuff like in the south and especially when they bring the dogs out the the german shepherds you know the the um uh the german shepherds show up they're getting out of their police trucks and sheriff mcclellan is gathering some folks to go check out this farmhouse that they found that they know is a little ways out there and then there's, you know, scattered zombies out in the fields and stuff that are just kind of walking. And the posse is just slowly walking up behind them, scanning the entire area, almost like when, when you see, like, search parties. You know, they're just kind of walking in a row and just shooting these zombies as they show, as they see them. And the German shepherds are on their leashes, barking and going wild. And, you know, uh, again, some of that awful footage from civil rights era stuff of of you know, the cops sicking the dogs on people, you know, it's just awful. Um, but that I'm sure was intentional, you know, to get that, to pull it, that those strings that everybody knew and could relate to from seeing on TV all the time, uh, in, in the news. And of course, Ben starts hearing the dogs barking and the gunshots from down in the basement. So he's kind of waking up. And at this point, I, I'm not sure why he doesn't start screaming, you know, hey, I'm in here. Help. I'm alive. He's quiet. And, you know, maybe maybe that has something to do with the the underlying angle of not trusting everybody, you know, Um, why he doesn't scream for help. I don't no matter every time I watch the movie, it's like, dude, say something. Say something. Say you're alive. So somebody come say I need help. Also, the the posse's rolling up. Uh, they're walking down the dirt road. They find the burnt out truck, and they're you know, McClellan's like, well, somebody had a barbecue. Ha uh-huh. ha. Uh, ben hears the sirens of the cops, and he's cautiously standing up to you know sort of make his way up up the stairs. And of course, the posse is taking out more zombies near the house. They're just popping them left and right. McClellan then orders some of his men to build a bonfire out in the field. Uh, and this, this is when we see, well, earlier when we see the, the burnt out truck, we see Vince Servinsky. Uh, Vince, you know, was one of the guys that was really tight with, um, with the, the latent image crew and Romero and all those guys. And he actually had a part in most of Romero's movies later on throughout the, throughout the years. But he would obviously go down in history as, as we know, the guy who killed Ben. <laughs> um, but he's basically says, you know, there's something there. I heard a noise. And Ben's cautiously moving through the house towards uh, one of the windows, and he's got his rifle out. But again, he could have just said, help, I'm alive in here. But he's not. He's still cautious. He's not trusting anybody. McClellan says, all right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. And bang, that's it. And Ben is down, he's dead. And, you know, we're stunned. You know, we've been watching him through the whole movie. He's been our hero. And again, at this point in time in film, you know, we're, just, we're, we're programmed to believe that he's the hero and he's going to make it out. and It's going to be a happy ending. 
especially all the stuff that was going on in the 50s with the the giant monster movies and this the invasion movies and all that kind of stuff those B movies they all ended with a happy ending with the the army showing up and fixing everything and then you know cut the credits you know at the end but no it's like it's a gut punch and it still stings 50 50 odd years later it still stings and McClellan you know says good shot okay he's dead let's go get him there's another one for the fire and then we cut to the credits and we have photos of the posse members clearing out the house you know dragging out the bodies with meat hooks uh the, the audio is the posse building their bonfire and having their I mean, you could say it's a powwow, but, you know, basically they're they're getting together and doing their thing. And through some of the photos, we see Ben's body being dragged out. And, you know, again, they, they're using meat hooks. They're not touching these bodies. They're just dragging them out and placing him on the, on the pile for the fire. And finally, we see Ben, his body is right next to the Heinzman zombie's body. And, you know, there's something poetic about that from the first person, you know, the first zombie that we see in the movie to the final kill in the movie, side by side, ultimately. And then we cut to footage of the fire actually starting, and we get the the, the end credit, and that's it. So that was Night of the Living Dead, the George Romero 1968 classic that pretty much redefined uh, the horror genre, created an entire subgenre, uh, and created the modern zombie as we know it. Um, without Night of the Living Dead, the last 50-something years of zombies wouldn't be possible, pure and simple. So yeah, thank you for tuning in to this first episode and getting on this journey with me. So let's see where it goes. Um, if you like what you heard, Please subscribe. All right, stay tuned for the next episode. Uh, what movie are we going to do next week? Uh, let's let the trailer do the talking. Roll it. Thirteen years ago, audiences across America were horrified by the savagery of a faceless killer. In the wake of this bizarre rampage, he vanished. Now, after more than a decade of silence, he has come out of hiding. Chainsaw Massacre 2. The Buzz is back. Directed by Toby Hooper. All right. So we'll see you next week with uh, Toby Hooper's 1986 sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>